0: jfpenn.com forward slash free hello travelers i'm joe francis penn and in today's episode i'm talking to dean Klinkenberg about the mississippi river valley now there are some rivers that transcend their name becoming almost mythical the nile the amazon and i think the mississippi is one of those too It runs through ten states and has brought life to countless generations, from the first Native Americans through to the settlers and into the modern industrial age. There are great cities along the river, as well as a huge variation in landscape, ecology and culture along the way. In this conversation, Dean takes us from the high reaches of the river, through the diverse landscapes of the valley, and sampling the food and culture along the way sharing his tips on where to go, what to see, and why the river continues to be a source of endless fascination and inspiration. I like Dean's comment that the river is like an inkblot test for people, that they see whatever they want or need to see in the river. A calming influence, an artistic inspiration, an economic resource, a spiritual home, or a way to experience nature with family or friends – I'm definitely drawn to rivers, and of course, humans have always settled by water because we need it to stay alive. But more than that, it's refreshing to the soul as much as to the body. Here in Bath, we're on the Kennet and Avon Canal, and also the River Avon. So Bath has both natural and man-made bodies of water. They join together here as well, and they both have different moods. I walk over the river most days and at the moment it's high after rain and dark brown with mud and silt. But in the summer, you can punt along it, and it's almost completely clear. You can never step in the same river twice for sure, but every day is different, and perhaps the river can reflect our mood as well as its own. So a question for you today as you listen. What rivers are near you, or which ones have you travelled or visited? How do they make you feel? In the words of Mark Twain from Life on the Mississippi, The Face of the Water, in time, became a wonderful book. It was not a book to be read once and thrown aside, for it had a new story to tell every day. I hope you enjoy the interview with Dean. Dean Klinkenberg writes mysteries and travel guidebooks about life along the Mississippi River in the USA. Welcome Dean.
1: Thanks it's a real uh, treat to be here and to to talk to you about my favorite body of water.
0: Oh yeah I'm very excited obviously uh, to any new listeners I'm British (laughs) so I'm going (laughs) to ask some basic questions. So let's start with the geography. Where is the Mississippi and what are some of the landscapes it cuts through?
1: So the Mississippi runs right through the heart of the United States, cutting a north to south path from Minnesota down to the Gulf of Mexico. So it touches 10, United, 10 of the U.S. states in about 2,300 miles, states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, my home state of Missouri, and then ending just about 100 miles south of New Orleans at the Gulf of Mexico. So it cuts through some really diverse parts of the U.S. and some diverse landscapes. And it's a it's an amazingly different river as you travel from north to south. Up in the, the northern reaches of the Mississippi, it's really a small stream. And there are a lot of places in the 400 miles or so above the Twin Cities of, Minnesota, of Minneapolis and St. Paul, where the river has been dammed a little bit, or there's some obstacles or even a couple of places you have to dodge a beaver dam if you're canoeing or paddling down the river. And then it gradually gets bigger. By the time it gets to Minneapolis, it uh, reaches uh, the largest set of waterfalls. They've been greatly altered to de- today, but at one time, they were a pretty impressive set of waterfalls. And then the river passes through a narrow gorge for a few miles before opening up into a valley that's about five miles wide uh, that was carved by melting glacial wa- glaciers uh, a few thousand years ago. So it's framed by these absolutely gorgeous 500-foot-tall limestone-faced bluffs that run for hundreds of miles south of the Twin Cities, all the way down to St. Louis, although the further south you go, they lose some some elevation. And then, oh, 100 miles or so south of St. Louis, the bluffs and the river enters the the wide uh, Mississippi Delta, as people know it, or what scientists call the Mississippi Embayment, just a very wide floodplain that's up to 100 miles wide, that at one time was covered in swamps and forests, and and now has been converted mostly to agriculture. And then from there, the river continues to get bigger and bigger. By the time it reaches New Orleans, it's something like the third or fourth largest river in terms of the amount of water it's carrying in the world. And uh, then south of New Orleans, it splits into these different channels as it uh, spreads out and slows down and enters the Gulf of Mexico. So you've got swamps, you've got bogs, you've got floodplain forests, you've got tall bluffs. There's all kinds of different landscapes uh, you can experience along this great river.
0: And I was just thinking, I was thinking about when as a child... I first he- heard or learned about the Mississippi because I didn't go my mum did move to America in the 90s she moved to Oregon and then to to San Diego but I remember learning about the Mississippi and we all learned the spelling that I double S I double P I little rhyme is that something that is from America or is that something I just picked up along the
1: way <laughs> I remember learning to spell that way too. I think it's it's something that's taught. And there of course were some really catchy pop songs from the, I think, forties and fifties where they spelled it out that way as well.
0: Ah, uh, okay. So maybe that's where it is. And then the other one I was thinking is Paul Simon's album with Graceland, where he sings about the Mississippi Delta. And I was just thinking, as you were talking, I was like, wow. And you were bringing up all these kind of images in my mind and thinking that it's one of these rivers that I think river, the word doesn't really do it justice. Like you said, body of water at the beginning there. But why are you personally so fascinated with the river and what does it mean to you?
1: I got hooked on it around the time I began college. I went to high school in rural southern Minnesota surrounded by corn and soybean farms. And I decided to to go to college a couple hours to the east in La Crosse, which is on the Mississippi. And I can still remember that first trip when we drove from our home in Albert Lee, Minnesota, to tour the campus. And you're driving for a couple of hours through all these agricultural fields, and the land is pretty flat. And then you get close to the state border and the road suddenly dips down and curves a little bit and opening and around one of these curves in front of you, you get this amazing view of the Mississippi Re- River Valley that opens up in front of you with these ribbons of green and blue. And it's just so dramatically different from everything that you know we had just been seeing. It captured my imagination at that moment, that, that how greatly different that landscape was and what I was used to. And then when I was in college, the river just became a, honestly, I think it was a calming place for me. I didn't, I was a little bit of a moody uh, teenager and young adult. And I'd spend a lot of my time along the river to brood and think about things and calm myself down. So I, I like hiking in the bluffs that were along the river, like riding my bike down to the riverfront, just to sit and watch the water flow by and think about, or I just feel like I was part of something a little bit bigger. So that was how it got its initial hooks in me. But over time, I also drove a lot along the river. That feeling is pretty powerful, that calming feeling. So I took a lot of road trips along the river and I began to to see a lot of communities, some of which had obviously seen better days and some were doing pretty well. And it made me curious to figure out what happened. And man, it was just a rabbit hole from there. I just got deeper and deeper into learning about the history of the river and the communities along it. And I realized that basically it was, you'll, you may appreciate this too, that it was an inkblot test for people. Like people saw whatever they wanted to see in this big river. For some people, like me, at times it was this calming influence. And for others, they saw it as this great economic resource. For some, they saw it, saw it as a, a source of sustenance. You can get food and other sources, get fish and other sources of food from it. So it became clear to me that part of what made this interesting is that we each want something a little bit different from it. So it's an endless source of drama. That's great for a writer. You can find all kinds of sources of conflict and drama there.
0: That is true. And it it is interesting, isn't it? Like I also have uh, an, an affinity with water. And when reflecting on why I love where i live now there are two bodies of water there's the river avon but then there's also the canal which of course is man-made but it's still a moving body of water and there's always different life on it and even though it's not quite as dramatic as the mississippi (laughs) there's some ducks and some cygnets and the swans and there's always Boats, and there's always things happening on a water course. I guess that's why they say the water under the bridge, you know, it's all, things are always moving. Is that part of the fascination?
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of it. And it's also partly that uh, it's never quite the same when you go back. You, it doesn't even matter the size of the river or watercourse, that every time you go, there's something somewhat different, maybe different birds there than the last time you went, or maybe the water is a little bit higher or a little bit lower than it was before. So now you see something you didn't see before. And the Mississippi is like that, but on a, a bigger scale. You can I've been lucky enough to paddle on different parts of the river and it's a canoe Uh, on different parts of the river. And uh, I like going back to a lot of these same places because every time it looks somewhat different. So I think that's part of it. There's that old cliche that you can never step in the same river twice. Mm. And there's certainly some truth to that. The water is always changing. It's the water that you step in today isn't the same water you stepped in yesterday. And yet there's this permanence for the river itself.
0: It's interesting here as well, but Bath, where I live, is built on an ancient spring. And the the pagans, before the time of the Romans, there was a, a goddess associated with the spring here, and that's the waters that the people of lived here for thousands of years because of that. And I imagine the Mississippi is the same, right? In the vast history of the continent, people have lived, as you said, for sustenance by the river. And so is there a particular spirituality associated with the river or any myths that are ancient?
1: Yeah, I think uh, there are so many. Let me just give you a couple of examples here. And I think part of this is that Maybe we have this universal human characteristic where we 're drawn to water, and the symbolism of water really resonates with us along the Mississippi. There are all kinds of different let's say sacred sites or places where the river has certainly been imbued with great spiritual meaning. you go back thousands of years, and a lot of the Native American communities built burial mounds on the tops of bluffs along the river so this was they were special places where Sometimes the elites, but in some societies it was, real, it was anybody, would transition to the upper world from the top of a bluff along the Mississippi or along the river. So there's like a long history of association in Native American communities between rivers and connections to other worlds, to the upper world or the lower world and that didn't end when Europeans came here. So like a couple of the major sites in Nauvoo, Illinois, which is just a really small town on the Illinois bank of the Mississippi, opposite Chicago, the opposite side of the state from Chicago, it was a major site or a site of major importance for the Mormon community. They'd been chased around the U.S. Uh, and in about 1840, 40, 41, they ended up settling in Nauvoo, Illinois. And actually, there was uh, I think it was called Commerce, Illinois at that point, and then Joseph Smith renamed it Nauvoo. So that became the major site where Mormons from the U.S. and thousands from the U.K. settled to create a new identity as a community of Latter-day Saints. And it was a rough period of time. There was a lot of conflict with the neighbors and they were eventually forced out and moved on to Salt Lake City. And many died in the process. Joseph Smith was killed by a mob before the the rest of the Mormons were moved west. But before they left, they built a, a temple, a cathedral essentially, of white marble or white stone that is on top of the bluff overlooking the Mississippi. And that site today is still... It's one of the Mormon pilgrimage sites. Mormons from around the country still, I think, have it as part of their what they have to do at some point to go and spend some time and pay homage to their ancestors who helped build their community. So, Nauvoo is one of the one of the sites of major importance. And then you just get all kinds of communities that sprang up along the Mississippi had these periods of boom and bust, and during the boom periods, many of them built magnificent churches. There's one church in particular, St. Luke's, that has something like a hundred Tiffany windows decorating their church. So I think these communities became the focal point of a lot of religious uh, communities before in the the days when a lot of the civilization was along the river. And then as people spread out, they took some of that with them. But you have some magnificent churches and cathedrals along the Mississippi. And even there are a couple of places where there are Buddhist temples now. And I think that there's still this strong sense of the river as an an entity of spiritual access or spiritual worship. So it's really fascinating.
0: I do think that is a universal. Obviously, for life, we need water, so it makes sense. But that's great to hear about that that cathedral. I, I love, I'm a bit of a sucker for churches and cathedrals and things of, and places of worship of any faith. But as you say, those burial mounds, they're, they're also places of spiritual importance. So that's fascinating. But you mentioned, I guess, a, a couple of towns there. And what are the other towns along the Mississippi or cities that you're like, okay, if you're traveling in this if you're traveling the river or you want to experience something that's typical, what, where would you recommend?
1: So we've got a handful of major cities that um, you could spend a lot of time exploring on their own. So I'll just quickly mention them. The twin cities of Minnesota, which are Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, you've got the smaller metropolitan area called the Quad Cities that straddle the Iowa and, and Illinois borders. And then St. Louis, Memphis, New Orleans. Those are the major metropolitan areas. And they're very different places. Like Minneapolis is a completely different world than New Orleans is. Mm. But they're both incredibly rich cultural cities. So I think along all of these, all of the major cities share a few characteristics. And not, probably one of the most important is that they have incredible music scenes that go back basically to the founding of each of these cities. So what I like to do is figure try to scout out where some of the live music venues are when I go to those big cities. Uh, and apart from that, of course, they have incredible food scenes now. In the past decade, all of these cities have attracted creative chefs who draw on local ingredients and you can get some great meals there. But you know, for me, I really love the smaller towns. Like, the big cities are great fun. I live in St. Louis. I love big cities. But when I go out along the river, I think I have the best time in some of the smaller communities. So let me tell you about a couple. But the city that's called the the first city on the Mississippi, Bemidji, Minnesota, is one of my favorite places to visit. And it's a community of maybe 15,000 people. And it's a college town, so you've got some of the amenities of the energy that comes from college life. And it's uh, the mythic home of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox, if you're familiar with those stories from the logging days. You can stand next to oversized statues of both of them and get your typical tourist picture. But Bemidji is just a friendly little town with some interesting art, a little bit of local art and some good places to eat. And access to just about any kind of outdoors experience you want to have short of mountain climbing because there are no mountains there. But it's a vibrant little community that I love going to. Further south of there have these twin cities of Dubuque, Iowa and Galena, Illinois that grew around the same time based on the lead mining industry. And they have very different histories after lead mining, but they have incredible architecture. Galena is a town of fewer than 10,000 people now, but it draws a couple million visitors a year because the main street is essentially intact. So it's it, I feel a little awkward talking to you about old buildings because you were not quite <laughs> up to the same standards as Europe. But Galena has an amazing collection of pre-Civil War architecture, which you don't find intact in the same degree in, in many communities in the US. So it's a beautiful site and it's almost all locally owned businesses. So you can go and you can shop and you're spending your money. and It's going to stay in the community and you can get a sense of the local life in the process. Dubuque is a bigger city. It's uh, 50 or 60,000 and it's, it has a little more varied economic history than Galena does, which is basically a farming community now and tourist town. But Dubuque has some great places to eat. It's got one of the best museums anywhere along the the Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium, which is a sprawling look at the ecology of the river from the headwaters all the way to the gulf and tanks so you can see what kind of fish live in the river. You'll be surprised at how big a blue catfish, for example, can get when you look at it in the tank. Um, So it's a fun place to go. I really enjoy going there. And then you still have a few communities that have held on to their original sort of ethnic identities. Not far from Dubuque, there's a town called Guttenberg, Iowa, that still has a very strong German identity. And then if you go south of St. Louis, there's a community called St. Genevieve, Missouri, that has an amazing collection of French colonial architecture that has survived for a couple hundred years. But it's on the way to becoming a national park, uh, and uh, so that architecture is going to be protected. And you still have some French traditions that have hung on in this little town. So every New Year's Eve, they still have the tradition where they go door to door and they sing a song that's called, I think, La Guyanae. And I'm probably butchering that. But it's one tradition that has lasted for a couple hundred years that you can still access. And then south of the, when you get down into the Delta region, I I really like Clarksdale, Mississippi. And it's just a town that feels like the home of the blues. There's still a couple of old style blues clubs you can visit and listen to local musicians who play traditional blues and some play a little more modern version of the blues. And it's also the home of the only company, the only outfitter that takes people on canoe trips on the lower part of the Mississippi, the Quapaw Canoe Company. You can go out and canoe for a day trip or go with them for a longer overnight trip. And then you can come back into town and you can enjoy a Mississippi Delta style tamale and take in some blues. So those are like, those are some of my favorite spots along the river.
0: Oh, that sounds fun. I, this is the, my big, I always say is my biggest problem with this podcast is <laughs> Whenever I talk to, them, I'm like, oh, I want to go there. I want to go see the, <laughs> those things because <laughs> it's uh, it's so good to think about different parts of the world and and how how people live in different places. And uh, you've mentioned canoeing a couple of times. I love canoeing. I've done some kind of some on rivers and on the ocean and things like that. And I, so I really do enjoy it. But it, it's not something I've done multi day canoeing or kayak trips. So tell us what are some of the experiences you can have with the canoeing or or kayaking in terms of, are we talking rapids? Are we talking these big wide rivers? Are we talking multi-day? And tell us about that.
1: You can structure just about any kind of trip you want. And on my website a few years ago, I put together a list of outfitters who can hook you up if you don't have your own boat so I can send you that link later. But there are places where you can rent a canoe or kayak or a stand-up paddleboard and go out for a couple of hours. Most of those outfitters, I think, are accustomed to doing day trips, but you can do longer. And the experience you're going to have is going to vary depending upon which part of the river you're on. So if you're in that wilder part of the upper Mississippi above the Twin Cities, it's a smaller stream. You're not going to be dealing with any barges or industrial boat traffic. You may occasionally have other recreational boaters, but it's pretty wild. And you're going to uh, be out there among birds and fish and beavers. So I like doing that area. And it's very well um, managed. So there are campsites that are already designated that you can stay at. There are a fair number of people who live along the river in different places, especially when you get past Bemidji. So you can go out for a leisurely paddle. There, there might occasionally be some very light rapids. It depends on what the the water level is. But there are no, you know, other than at St. Louis now, there are really no rapids left on the Mississippi. Most of them have been dammed for navigation reasons. You know, up in that area, you can do these quick, easy little trips. You can string together multi-day trips where you're doing where you're camping in uh, designated campsites. You can, south of the river, what's really, what I really like is when you get past the Twin Cities, when the river is getting a lot bigger, then there are a lot of islands that open up for camping. And there's a couple hundred mile stretch of the Mississippi from Wabasha, Minnesota down to about the Quad Cities, that's part of a a fish and wildlife refuge. So there's still, it's not entirely pristine by any stretch, but there are a lot of areas that are managed for wilderness. And then the islands are really spectacular. Right? You, you can, as you're paddling down, you're depending upon the water level, again, oftentimes you get these brilliant sand beaches where you can camp and spend the night or you can just stop and have lunch and, and swim for a little bit. And in that part of the river, you're never very far away from a town or another person. Like the islands can feel pretty isolated but you're never really far away from a community. If you're worried about running out of food or running out of water, there's always going to be something around the corner uh, where you can resupply. And you can easily string together a multi-day trip. There are lots of areas that are signed for a couple of hours, canoe trails through backwater areas that where you can do a loop where, where there's essentially no current. You have a better chance of seeing wildlife in some of those kinds of paddles. But man, then you get part south of St. Louis in that area where the Quapaw Canoe Company works and it's isolated <laughs> uh, and it's a big river. So I find it exhilarating and I think it's amazingly wild. You know, it, it surprised me the first time I went on a canoe trip on that part of the river because I had my own expectations about what it was going to be like. And even though it's confined between tall levees for much of that stretch, The area between the levees is remarkably wild, and you don't get very many communities right on the river down there anymore. The river had a habit of changing channels and and stranding communities uh, on dry land at at different points in its history. So there's a stretch of, I forget, like 60 or 70 miles where there's not even a river bridge, uh, and there's not really any community of any size during that stretch. So you can feel very much like you're out in the wilderness out there on your own. And I love those kinds of trips. It's hard to imagine in the middle of the United States and this with all the industrialized areas we have along the river that you can still have an experience on the lower Mississippi where you can feel that, that much wilderness and that much out there on your own. I think that's pretty spectacular and it's reason enough to get down there and, and experience two or three days at least of, of paddling on that part of the river.
0: I must say, it's, it, I don't know if it probably wasn't exactly that area, but when I was down in New Orleans, I went kayaking and out in the bayou and it really was just incredible to be so near this sort of major city and yet just feel like you were in the middle of nowhere in a sort of area I didn't know anything about, that sort of Louisiana by you all the trees and the, the little knobbly knees that come out and it was probably one of my favorite things in that area was getting out there and as you say that sounds fantastic but I, you did mention swimming there and it made me wonder so obviously you've mentioned there are some bits that are industrial but is it a river that people can swim in or is it just depend on the section?
1: I think that's one of the peop- one of the things that people misunderstand about it is that you know, the vast majority of the river is clean enough to swim in, and you know, it, I think people confuse the uh, muddy color with pollution, but it's not pollution. Most of that you know, it comes from sediment. The Missouri River that meets the Mississippi around St. Louis brings with it a lot of the Great Plains because it's it's carving through these uh, the Great Plains landscape and bringing with it sand and different kinds of sediment. And that's what gives the river that color. And on the upper part of the river, agricultural practices that sort of increase runoff have also given the river a muddier look than it had historically. It's not polluted anymore to anywhere near the same degree that it was, say, back in the 70s before the Clean Water Act passed in the United States. You're not going to dip a glass of water in there and drink it uh, unfiltered and without treating it. But it's perfectly fine to swim in. There are only a couple places that I would not swim myself. And I've been in different parts of the Mississippi where, even on the lower part of the Mississippi, where the swimming was fantastic and enjoyable. And I think it's something more people need to understand is, is perfectly okay to do.
0: Yes, so ask your local guide and they yes. will know. <laughs>
1: Generally speaking, don't swim downstream of where the sewers dump into the Mississippi. That's the first <laughs> tip.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good tip. But so that's the going on the water. What about next to the water? Like you mentioned hiking. I love hiking. What are the areas that one can hike in view of the river?
1: I think the best hiking is on the upper half of the river, particularly, say, in the, the National Wildlife Refuge area that i mentioned So if you go from the Quad Cities up to the Twin Cities, you have the river that is defined by these tall limestone bluffs. And all kinds of places along there have trails where you can either hike down in a floodplain forest, if it's not too muddy, or if the river's not too high, and you can get right down there next to the river and see beaver lodges. And you're not always going to see animals on those trips, but that gives you uh, the best opportunity to see certain kinds of native wildlife. But then there are also a bunch of parks where you can hike from the river level up to the top of the bluff. So it's there are places you can do rock climbing too. There aren't nearly as many of those, but these are just walks up steep inclines. And the reward is you get these spectacular panoramic views looking up and down river. And there are a few places that I really like best. There's a uh, one called Rush Creek State Natural Area near Ferryville, Wisconsin that has three spectacular overlooks. And it's a bit of work to get there. Uh, It takes about a half hour or more walk up an old logging road to get to these areas. But you're walking through the woods up this logging road and you take a turn and you exit the trees and you get into this area that we colloquially we call a goat prairie. So it's just this prairie on top of the bluff where there are no trees. And you get these expansive views looking up and down the river and there are lots of unique and sometimes endangered kinds of plants occasionally a rattlesnake so there are lots of places where you can do that the state parks offer a lot of those opportunities but don't overlook the uh, lesser known areas there are a lot of public lands that are designated as like a state natural area or a wilderness area that are not managed nearly as heavily and they don't get they're not going to have the services of a state park but I find them to offer a lot better hiking.
0: Well, that sounds good. And then obviously some listeners are in America. What is there anything that would be surprising or unexpected or things that might not know about the River Valley that you, find, you have found unusual?
1: I think one of the first things that I, I always encounter with people is they still assume the river is extremely dangerous. And doesn't It's not really dangerous. I'm trying to be a little careful about how I say this because people do still drown in the river, but it's usually because they're being careless and they're not wearing life jackets if they're out in boats. The river is not nearly as dangerous as people think it is. It's a lot safer to go out there. And most of the hazards today come from the navigation structures like wing dams that we have put along the river to make it easier for barges to float. And then, of course, the barges themselves Require a little bit of forethought to get around when you see one coming, but it's really not that dangerous. So I think that's one thing that people always assume it's dangerous and it's really not. And then we talked about the clean water, that the water is not nearly as polluted as people think it is, and it's perfectly okay to go swimming in. But you, the other thing that I was thinking about is that I think that the Mississippi is in some ways one of the most widely known but least understood <laughs> cultural icons. And that people are—they may be drawn in by the the beauty of the river valley, but they don't understand fully how much the river itself has been altered and what the uh, consequences of that have been, and how much we've spent to redo the river for flood protection for navigation. And I, I try to—I hope that people don't just come to the river to look at it for a, a few pretty sights, but try to go a little bit deeper in understanding what exactly they're looking at and how is it different from the river has been from what the river has been historically
0: i guess it it reflects so because it goes through so many states what do you say 10 states it has this effect on so many people and so much business and agriculture and i guess that has to keep changing it's never going to stay the same absolutely Yeah. Well, you mentioned, I've got to ask about food and drink, because when we travel, we like to to taste some of the the local stuff. And you mentioned that there is a great food scene in some of these cities. So uh, anything you particularly recommend uh, from the River Valley in terms of food and drink?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about this from two different angles. So first of all, I'm thinking about what might you be able to eat that comes directly from the river, and let's go there first, as we don't have nearly as much commercial fishing as we used to along the river, but there is still some, and there are still places, these small family run fish shops where you can stop and you can buy fish that they caught that day from the Mississippi. And a lot of times um, it'll be smoked, and it's almost certainly going to be fish that you aren't especially familiar with, or maybe you're afraid to try, but just go ahead and do it. Smoked carp is amazingly delicious. My the only my only caution with that is if you're gonna bring some home, put it in a separate container all by itself because that's that carp has quite a scent and it's not going to come out of your cooler anytime soon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's brilliant. I think of carp as a sort of in ponds like Japanese ponds.
1: Yeah they are in Japanese ponds and I think eating carp is is more people enjoy eating carp in other places than in the united states it's a very popular form of fish in a lot of asian countries we haven't quite taken to it as much but i'd like to tr- i'd like to encourage people to try more because i think smoked carp is a, is a really delicious fish to eat so you got to do that and if you're really adventurous you might even find a place that's serving turtle there's still occasionally restaurants i go in that might be doing uh, a turtle soup or some kind of fried turtle. And it's worth trying at least once. I'm not going to say it's the best food you're ever going to (laughs) eat. Is
0: that not protected in any way?
1: (laughs) It depends on the species. Mm. There are certain species of turtle that are endangered and you won't be seeing those on the menu, but there are others that are not and they're perfectly okay to to catch and serve. So those are probably like the two kinds of foods you're going to get from the river. And then you have some regional variations in food. In in the northern Minnesota area, there's a crop called wild rice, which is actually a grain, but it's been a food staple for Native Americans for centuries. And it's still harvested in traditional ways where they go out in canoes with wood knockers and help loosen the grains from, from the stocks themselves. And you can buy uh, wild rice from all kinds of stores in, in Minnesota, especially in northern Minnesota. And you'll see it on a lot of venues as a side dish or in a soup. Uh, chicken and wild rice is a real common soup. And of course, walleye is in all the lakes up there. So you see a lot of walleye on menus up there as well. So you know, as you travel along the river, you get some of those kinds of regional foods where things vary a little bit. So rather than going into all that, I think the couple of things that I really like to do myself. I like to look for a place that just, you know, a restaurant that's on the river. Uh, and there are lots of places where you can get a table with a riverside view and sometimes out on a patio or deck and just enjoy a meal next to the water. Or you can go to a, a local meat market or deli or grocery store and put together a picnic basket for yourself and go find a, a sandy or a grassy bank next to the river and enjoy me all that way. Those, I think, are kinds of prototypical river kinds of experiences. And there are certain restaurants that also have become pretty well-known for their food. I'm going to be a little reluctant to recommend specific places right now because I'm not sure how well all these places are doing given the pandemic that we're in. But I would say if you just search around Yelp, or you know, I don't really like Yelp that much, but if you just start, use some, talk to some local folks about where they like to go eat and find out what some of the best places are, that's usually what my approach is. I just ask around where people like to go. Do you think,
0: yeah, as you say, it's asking where the locals go rather than the place that are the tourists, the main tourists spots. I think that's true anywhere in the world. But in terms of alcohol, because I do drink, and I wondered whether there are vineyards or whether it's a sort of more of a sort of craft beer area. And, and I don't know whether this is just a sort of stereotype, but I tend to think there there must be bourbon or some kind of whiskey, right, further south.
1: Absolutely. And I think the distillery part of things, that's really starting to to take off. So We have a lot of craft beer along the river Uh, and uh, one place that I, I really like uh, is called the Potosi brewery and it's got a long history and there's a a fascinating story about how after it had closed and had been closed for years, how the local community pooled their resources essentially and created a not-for-profit to bring it back and they make really good beer and that's near Dubuque, but it's in Potosi, Wisconsin. The, Twin Cities area must have a hundred craft breweries. I've been to a handful. I I would say probably you're going to be fine no matter where you go. And then near the Quad Cities also, there's a place called the Mississippi River Distillery that uses that sources most of their materials from local farmers. And they do have a whiskey and a vodka. And I'm blanking on what else they do. I don't know if they're making a gin. I know you you like your gin and tonics. I do. Yeah. They might have a gin as well. So there are some of those, there are more distilleries along the river than there were five years ago. But honestly, beer is where you're going to have the highest, most consistent quality. There are a lot of wineries and you're not going to confuse them with something you would get from Napa Valley. Or from France, but many of them do have some fine drinkable wines of their own. And it's half the fun of just going to the tasting rooms and sampling what they have to offer anyway. But there are dozens of wineries along the Mississippi, and you could spend weeks just going from place to place and sampling what they have to offer.
0: <laughs> Sounds like fun, because of course, it's, all of this is to do with the terroir, the land where things come from. And I like that in this modern day, we're going back to brewing locally and local food and local stuff so that it all just becomes much more localized instead of this is what America is. It's very specific, which I guess is what you write about and talk about on your site. So I do want to ask before we we're almost at the end of this, but you write mysteries and travel guidebooks about life along the river. Tell us about what's behind your mysteries, like what inspires those books?
1: There are just too many stories to tell, uh, I think is the bottom <laughs> line. So, and this, I wasn't sure if this was really something I was going to enjoy doing. When I wrote the first one, I wasn't sure if I'd really be any good at writing fiction. And it turned out it's really fun. I, I don't have to do nearly as much research to write a mystery. I do some, obviously, but it takes a lot less research to do that than to do a travel book or a history book or something like that. And it's it feels more creative to me. So I took a character that's, let's say, very loosely based on my experiences. I t- decided to create a travel writer protagonist who has a habit for getting in trouble, who's much less functional and happy than me. So people shouldn't confuse his troubles with mine. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I just send him to different places, different communities where bodies turn up, he gets in trouble, and he's got you know, a friend who is a homicide detective named Brian Jefferson who helps bail him out sometimes. So I'm I'm just having a good time writing those books and I and when I write in the mysteries I try to give you a feel for each of the communities too. So it's another way to do some subtle, underhanded marketing about the Mississippi. You can get a sense for these communities and you may want to go visit one yourself after reading the mysteries.
0: Yes, I must say, it's one of my favourite things too. It's my character, Morgan Sierra, needs to go to Lisbon this weekend. So I guess I'll have to go too (laughs) and uh, write about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, tax-deductible travel, one of the perks of being a writer. Now, uh, I did want to ask you, so apart from your own books, which are obviously fantastic, what are some other books, uh, a couple that you recommend about or set on the Mississippi
1: this was really hard to narrow down. So, there are probably hundreds of books about the Mississippi. So, I, I ended up, I think, with five. And I'll just give you a quick little summary of each. Obviously, everybody knows about Mark Twain. So, I, for me, I think my favorite book that I go to over and over is Life on the Mississippi, which is partly biographical, his history, learning how to become a riverboat pilot, and partly nostalgic. The second half of the book. He relates his experiences traveling as a tourist back to places along the upper Mississippi that he visited when he was younger. So I find that one of my favorite Mark Twain books that I go back to over and over. There's this interesting dynamic. Every year we get several dozen people who decide to paddle the Mississippi from the headwaters to the Gulf, and many of them end up writing books based on their experiences. The best book in that genre is called Mississippi Solo by Eddie Harris. What I like about his book is that for one thing he's he started the trip with no experience in a canoe. So you get this sort of drama from the beginning like what's going to go wrong for this poor guy. But on top of that he's a gifted African-American writer who I think takes brings a little different perspective to the experience than almost every other book in that genre. If you want to go deeper into the history and some of the politics, the river politics John Barry's book, Rising Tide, about the 1927 flood, is an epic story of heartbreak and death and abuse and politics. And there's some fascinating stories in there and some interesting observations about how that 1927 flood changed uh, so much in the way that we look to the federal government for different kinds of assistance. If you're interested in the environment, Learning more about the details of the river's ecosystem and environment, there's a book called Immortal River by Calvin Fremling that is a fantastic book. He was a biologist, but he writes in a pretty accessible way, and I think he covers a lot of important issues. It tends to be more about the upper half of the river than the lower half, but it's a fascinating read to help you understand more about what a river is and what the ecosystems are. And then last is a book called The Last River Rat by Kenny Solway, which will take you even deeper into that world. He he spent a good part of his life making a subsistence living from the backwaters of the Mississippi in Wisconsin. And his book takes you on a month-by-month look at how he did it, what he did every single month of the year. So it's an interesting read.
0: Wow, I appreciate you narrowing down your, your vast knowledge <laughs> of the area. And of course, people can find more details, lots of details, and lots of books and things on your website. So tell us where can people find you and your books online?
1: So for the mysteries, uh, go to deanklinkenberg.com. That's where I maintain information on those books. And then for travel and history and the nonfiction uh, about the Mississippi, it's Mississippi Valley Traveler.com. And uh, it's one L in traveller. I think in the UK, it's a habit to use two L's for traveller, but. uh,
0: That's the way it's spelt. You all spell it wrong over there.
1: (laughs) We spell a lot of things wrong.
0: (laughs) You do. Lovely to talk to you, Dean. That was fantastic.
1: That was really fun. Thanks. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpencom forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.